0: A reading from God's Word this morning comes from Mark chapter 8. You can turn there in your Bibles or read along with me in the bulletin if you have one before you. Once again, welcome to those of you who may be new with us, maybe attending for the first time, whether via live stream today or here in the sanctuary. We greet you in the name of Christ. You have come on a good Sunday, a wonderful passage here in Mark chapter 8, but I will, I will warn you ahead of time, it is a challenging word from our Lord. It's a word that is meant for us to count the cost, count the cost of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now maybe that's a question that some of you have as you enter into the presence of the Lord today? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it take to be a follower of Christ? Well, if that's your uh, question uh, today, you're you're definitely here on the right Sunday. Jesus is going to address that directly from Mark chapter 8. But maybe for some of us in this room who are Christians, and maybe we've been Christians for many years, maybe for a very long time, and maybe we have been Lulled into a kind of um, spiritual slumber. And maybe we have uh, fallen into a kind of spiritual laziness with regards to our followership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's uh, the case for you uh, today, I want you to know the Lord Jesus wants to do what he promises to do each time that the word is open, and that is to. Uh, Comfort those who are afflicted, but also to afflict those who are comfortable. And He has indeed done that for my own soul as I've looked at this uh, text this week, and I do pray through His Spirit we together will meet the living God in His Word. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed, when He comes in the glory of His Father and with the holy angels. And He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you alone through the power of your Holy Spirit can make plain to us these words. Just as Jesus spoke plainly to his disciples in this passage, we would ask that your Spirit now would come and speak spiritual, plain words to our souls. We ask that we would understand your words and that we would receive the spiritual impact that you intend these words to have on the souls of all of us here. We'd lay hold this day of the promises of your word that when you send it forth, it will not return void, but it will accomplish that for which you have sent it. And so, Lord, send it. Send it into our hearts, now on the wings of the Spirit, and accomplished eternal ends for the glory of Christ and the advance of His kingdom. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we haven't said this very much over the course of this year yet. Noted it maybe maybe twice in the time that we've... Uh, gathered together through 2021, but this is the 10th year of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church's existence as a local congregation. It was January the 16th, uh, 2011, when we originally gathered here in this space for our very first worship service, and it will be later this year, the end of November. In fact, it will be the Sunday right before Thanksgiving, where we will celebrate um, our reception as a congregation into the PCA, which is our denomination here, the Presbyterian Church in America, as a member church within uh, this denomination, and we'll actually celebrate our tenth year uh, anniversary then. Look forward to that that time. What a great opportunity that will be! But as I was thinking back over that first year of ministry, and it, it actually hit me in a very meaningful way. This Last year, I don't know if it's just because it's been uh, 10 years uh, or so, Uh, but we, as a very young congregation, when we started there in uh, January, and a lot fewer of you were uh, gathering with us then, and we're grateful you're here now. um, We also experienced early in the life of this congregation a, a, a significant tragedy. Um, The very first uh, member of this local congregation who died, died on March the 1st, 2011. His name is Jeremiah Small. Now, for some of you in this room, that name rings a bell. You know him very well. You you love him. You care for him, and even the mention of his name uh, brings a smile to your face. I can see it on uh, several of you as I as I mention it. But for a number of you in this room, you don't know who it is I'm talking about. You don't know who Jeremiah is. Uh, Jeremiah was a missionary. Uh, He served in Iraq with Servant Group uh, International, one of our partner ministries that we uh, support here at Cornerstone. And he was uh, teaching uh, on the morning of March the 1st, uh, 2011. And um, a student, while he was teaching, a student who knew that he was a believer... Um, Jeremiah was the type who wore his faith on his sleeve. He was always seeking opportunity to evangelize and spread the gospel. But as he was teaching school that morning in the little Christian school that servant group had established, a young man uh, stood up and took aim and shot him to death while he was in uh, the classroom on March the 1st. And we as a congregation many miles away grieved over the loss of Jeremiah, and uh, recognize that um, we come up this last March on a significant anniversary of just remembering his death. After 10 years, um, he is now uh, still with the Lord, and we will one day meet him. Um, One of the questions that this text, I think, raises in the life of believers is, what makes a young man, in the prime of his life, Um, travel to a place like Iraq and teach school in order to see the kingdom of God advanced and to evangelize and as I know he would declare and one day I trust we will get him to see him declare that it was all worth it to be cut down in the early part of one's life sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as teaching school to those uh, Iraqi children what gives someone the confidence, the strength, the commitment, and the love to be able to take such a step and to pay such a price? I want to entertain that question with you because I think it's the question of this text, uh, the question that I think Jesus is posing before his disciples and even the crowd. And to do so, I want to look at this text in several ways with you to get underneath that question. What does it take to be that kind of life laying down, life giving up, being spent for Christ, servant of the Lord, and to live with such commitment to Christ that it's like the things of the world don't even have an attachment to you. Because the glory of Christ has become all of what your mind and heart and eyes see. And you want to see His kingdom advance. I pray that your heartbeat this morning, when you're here, the Lord would begin to capture your mind and your heart in that way, even as He captured uh, Jeremiah's heart in that way. Well, I want you to see first in in this text the call of Christ. I want you to see the call of Christ. And then I want you to see that the that there is a mirror call, and that is the call of the Christian. And the call of the Christian mirrors the call of Christ. The call of the Christian mirrors the call of Christ. And then I want you to see there's a temptation in this text to to not follow Christ. I think it came for Christ and it also comes for us. And then I want you to see how it is you can overcome that temptation. The call of Christ, the call of the Christian, which mirrors the call of Christ, the temptation that Christ faced, that we face, how to overcome that temptation that we might follow Christ. I want to start with this call of Christ, and I want to summarize it very simply for you so that you, can, so that you note-takers can get this down simply. The call of Christ is very simply this. In love for us, He came to suffer and die in our place. That was the call of Christ. In love for us, he came to suffer and die in our place. Now notice in this text that Jesus has raised the question to his disciples. We actually looked at this a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday. Uh, The question, who do people say that I am? Peter gives Jesus several answers, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, but ultimately he zeroes in on the disciples themselves, and Peter answers on their behalf when he asks, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ. And as soon as Peter answers, You are the Christ, Jesus begins to unpack what it means to be the Christ. He says there in verse 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man, the favorite title of the Lord Jesus Christ, borrowed from Daniel chapter 7. You might look at verse 13 and 14 later this afternoon. A prophetic figure of a Son of Man who comes before Almighty God with glory and with power and with strength. And he's declared a ruler who will rule over all the kingdoms of the earth, all peoples and all men and women and nations. This Son of Man will come, Daniel tells us, and Jesus says He is that Son of Man. And notice how He describes His mission. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in love for us. He is to suffer and He is to die. Because the wages of sin is death. Someone must die for the sins that you and I have committed. And the judgment of those sins is on our head. We are the ones who should die. And so Jesus has come in our place, He is our substitute, He is our advocate. And on the cross, He is receiving the penalty of our sins. He is draining the cup of God's wrath on our behalf towards our sin. This is the purpose for which Jesus came. In love for us, because He wants to make us His people and redeem us. We are His treasured possession. He is willing to suffer and He is willing to die on our behalf. That's Jesus' call. Now I want you to see the call of the Christian mirrors the call of Christ. It's a parallel to the call of Christ. Look at verse 35 in the text. Here's Jesus describing the call of a Christian. If anyone would come after me, pretty classic language for discipleship. If anyone would come after me or follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, many of you in this room, I know so many of you in this room quite well, you've heard that verse, well, for some of you, your whole life. You know it really, really well. And it's easy to just simply let the familiarity of that verse sort of get, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to take up our cross daily and and follow him. And and that means, you know, I should probably... um, you know, not, not drink quite as much as I do, and I should use my time uh, a little bit better in towards of stewarding it, and, and maybe give a little bit more to a missionary or a nonprofit. And he, he wants me to do something like that, just do some kind of good deed. And that, that's what it means to sort of take up my cross and, and follow me. Well, let, let me tell you if those are the kind of things that pop into your mind, those are fine applications. Those are, that's true. There is some denial of self that's happening in uh, those realities. Well, but it would not have registered in that way for the original hearers here in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is saying, Take up your cross daily and follow me. It would not have been some sort of simple, like, Yeah, let's cut back on our movie budget and give a little bit more to the church. It's not how that verse would have registered. Again, fine application. It's not how it would have been heard. I think part of this is because cross has been really domesticated in our own day and time. Like as I was preparing this this message, even making uh, notes yesterday, I'm sitting in my dining room and I look on my dining room wall and there's there's a cross. There's a Celtic cross on my dining room. It's this beautiful Celtic cross. I love it. And I'm sitting there going, yep. That's what we think of when we think of a cross. We think of a beautiful Celtic cross. We think of home decor, something that goes along with the color scheme of our dining room. It looks like a beautiful iron cross. We think of a gold necklace a shiny around our neck that says, we love Jesus and we like nice jewelry at the same time, right? These are the images that have a tendency to really hold the sway in our hearts when we hear the word cross. But those images would have been absolutely unthinkable in the first century. Totally unthinkable. The only thing that would have come to the mind of those in whom Mark is writing to and whom Jesus is speaking to is images of of bloody figures hanging upon a pole gasping for breath, dying a slow and gruesome, terrible death. That's what they would have thought of. You've got to feel the impact of what Jesus is saying here. If you don't take up your cross daily and follow me, he'll say in another passage, you're not worthy of me. That's the kind of language that Jesus is speaking to us here. It's very strong language. It's an instrument of execution of the worst possible kind in the Roman world. Now, I'd love to, as a preacher, you see preachers do this kind of thing like, well, you know, actually in the Greek, it's not quite as graphic as... As it seems, you know, the front, I can't do that. There's no scapegoating there. There's also uh, no sort of twist of literature where I can go, well, you know, cross was a commonly used metaphor in the first century, and and this is really a literary use of the word cross, and he really doesn't mean cross when he says cross. And, you know, no, he means cross. Like no one else taught like this. This is a radical statement from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a radical statement to the degree where He is saying to you, nothing short of daily death for you is what followership of me means. A total life sacrifice. That's what discipleship means. Now here's a single point I want you to take away at this moment is, I want you to see the call of Christ which was in love for us, He came to suffer and die is parallel to the call of the Christian. That in love for Christ, who loved us and suffered and died, we now love Christ unto suffering and death. That's what he's saying. That's the normal life of the Christian. That's the normal life of the Christian. Is that he or she loves Jesus so much that nothing will be above or rival to his his or her love for the Lord Jesus Christ that... We get the chance to suffer as Christ has suffered as his followers. He was rejected, we will be rejected. He was suffered, we will suffer. He died, we will die. Some of us may again be saying, die to our desires? <laughs> yes, that's included. But more than that, I want you to to see what's going on here. The disciples are gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks these words. Do you realize every one of these men are going to be martyred for their love for Jesus? Except for John, who got off really easy. He was exiled for the rest of his life on an island in Patmos in the Aegean Sea for his love for Christ. This is not a metaphor that Jesus is working with. He's speaking of a reality that all of us must lay our lives literally at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, m- Most scholars believe that Mark is writing his gospel either right before or during the reign of the Emperor Nero. So this means that the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, not just the initial audience of the passage, but the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, are those who are going to watch and may be burned alive... By Nero, which was done by the thousands. I just, I'm wanting you to feel the impact of what Jesus is saying when he says, Listen, I want all of you to get this. If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you don't know me. He's clarifying this for Peter. Peter is so got. The explanation of what it means to be a Messiah wrong, that Jesus is now speaking, we're told, plainly to them. He's speaking directly. He's not speaking in parables. Mark wants us to know that clearly. He wants them to get this right. Now, if this was just a one-off in the Scripture and we didn't see this kind of language anywhere else, we might write it off. But listen to these passages. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus Will be persecuted. Philippians 1:29, "For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe but also suffer for His sake." Do you notice the language of Paul there? It has been granted to you. It is a gift to you that you not only believe in him, but you get to suffer as he has suffered for his sake." First Peter 2:21. For to this you have been called, the call of Christ, the call of Christian, that's where we are. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And we could go on. The scripture over and over and over is calling us to identify wholeheartedly, completely, in every way, with the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was his call? In love, to suffer and die for his people. What's our call? In love for Christ, to suffer and die for him. Now maybe you say to yourself, you know, this is one of those preacher's sermons, right? I mean, this is one of those where, you know, he's really zealous about this text and And so he's a vocational preacher, right? He sits in these texts all day long and and thinks about them. And now he's gotten really excited. And he thinks what's really only for preachers and missionaries. He's now preaching to all people everywhere. But but really, Jesus' focus here is on the disciples. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me. Oh, isn't that interesting? You know, every time in the Gospel of Mark up to now, you know what we see with Jesus when it comes to the crowd? <laughs> He's trying to get away from them. It's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that he calls a crowd to himself. And what does he want to say to them? If anyone would come after me. N- notice the word, if anyone. Now, Maybe, maybe you say to yourself, I like it I like it when you preach grace. Like I wish you would do that now, like right now, right? right." Maybe you find yourself doing that. I thought salvation was free. I thought that, that's why we come here, Nate, to, to hear that, that salvation is free. It is. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is still true today. Praise be to God. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. That is true all day long and twice on Sundays. But we're not talking about earning salvation here. That's not the context of this passage. We're talking about the kind of life that flows from one who is saved. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of life that's channeled from the one who has met a Savior who has loved them unto suffering and death. Who has gone to the greatest lengths to make them his own. When that kind of love begins to get into you, you know what kind of love starts flowing out of you? The same kind of love. That's what begins to flow out of you. The kind of love that says... I'm ready to be spent for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is my highest joy and greatest value. Let the world reject me. Let suffering come. Let them do their worst. I'm going to let all goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. That's what the Christian says. I love the way John, James Montgomery Boyce puts it. Some of you all know that name. He was pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church years ago. Latter part of the 20th century. A faithful servant of the Lord. I love the way that he puts it. Both this, this saving grace and call to discipleship in one phrase. This is the way he puts it. The gospel is a free gift That will cost you everything. All right, now hear him out on this. It's a free gift and there's no strings attached. So if you're hearing me say something like, Oh, I see how this works. This is like best advertising ever. You bite on the front end with news that's too good to be true. And on the back end, he's gonna require all this stuff for you to keep it. Nope, you're mishearing me. If you're hearing that, it's not what we're saying. It's a free gift, no strings attached. Not of works lest anyone should ever boast. And as soon as you begin to embrace that Christ and you get to know his love for you and the depth of that love begins to dawn upon your mind and on your heart, it begins to pulsate like blood through the spiritual veins of your character. All of a sudden you begin to realize you are willing to give houses and lands and time and energy and go to Iraq and teach high schoolers for someone who would love you like that. It's a gift that once you get it, you can't just stare at it. The the one who receives the gifts must respond to it. The, The love of that one who has loved you gets inside of you and renovates you. This is the call of Christ. This is the call of the Christian and it mirrors the call of Christ. In love, he suffered and he died for us. In love for him, we suffer and we die for him. And I want you to see, thirdly, there's a temptation. The temptation is for all of us, but it's, it's in this passage directed towards Christ. So we want to look at it with Christ, because the same temptation that's directed towards Christ is ultimately directed towards us. And, and friends, I, I genuinely believe we as North American upwardly mobile types, this is a very important temptation for us to take hold of and recognize how incipient, how subtle it is, and how it works in our lives far too often. The temptation is simply this. I want to give you another quick sentence so that you can capture it. The temptation is in love of self that we would do all that we can to avoid suffering and death for the sake of Christ. That's the temptation. In love of ourselves... We would do whatever it is we can to avoid suffering and death for the sake of Christ. Okay, we're actually going through life, kind of. Should I say something? Should I not? That might cost me. We're doing the we're doing valuations as we walk through. Do I want an awkward moment? Do I not want an awkward moment? Do I, you know, those are those are the kind of valuations we're making to avoid suffering and pain in love of ourselves. We don't want to experience this for the sake of Christ, and that's really Peter's. Peter's suggestion in this text. Notice in verse 32 that after Jesus says, to be the Son of Man means to come to be suffered, to reject, to die. Peter takes Him aside, we're told, and begins to rebuke Him. Now, this is just a a word of wisdom here before we move on. It's a very simple word. Take it to heart. Don't rebuke Jesus. You know, if you ever find yourself in this situation... Don't rebuke Jesus. He's going to make you look like a fool very soon because you are a fool, and he's going to show you that. So don't, don't rebuke Jesus. Now, I, I say that. I know that's kind of, kind of funny, but how many times do we at times say things like or think to ourselves, if I were in charge of the world, right, I would do it this way. <laughs> no. When I get to heaven, I've got all kinds of questions for God for the way that He's acted on this and that and the other. Probably not, actually. Probably not. I, know, I understand why you think that. I can actually understand why you give voice to that. I, I have probably some of those questions in my own life and mind as well. I sympathize. I don't mean to not sympathize. But let's just take, let's just take inventory for a moment. You know why things are so confusing? About the world to you and to me? Do you know why your life you can't even make sense of? It's and its turn. Because you don't know really what's going on. He knows everything. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is everywhere present. You, you see this little bitty slice of something. And you draw major sweeping conclusions about life and history and everything. We don't know anything we just know what has been revealed to us and one of the things that's been revealed to us is his thoughts are not our thoughts his ways are not our ways when Jesus spoke this to Peter Peter should have gone I've got things to learn I don't understand that Jesus can you help me understand that I know that is true I need to know it and it scares me to death what you're trying to suggest But I know I can trust you, and you are good, and you are right, and I am the student, and you are the master. But what does he do? (laughs) He rebukes Jesus. And I want you to see that Jesus doesn't take kindly to his rebuke. Jesus rebukes him back. With the strongest rebuke we see anywhere in the New Testament out of the lips of Jesus. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Now listen, friends, it is a bad day spiritually when Jesus calls you Satan. You have lost your way if Jesus calls you Satan. All right, that's one thing I know. That's pretty clear. I didn't have to do a lot of study on that. I just recognize it. That's bad. Like, don't have Jesus call me Satan. Write that down, right? You know, get that correct. Why would he save his most severe rebuke? in all of the New Testament, for Peter at this moment. I mean, I'm sort of sympathetic to Peter, to be quite honest. In fact, when I read my Old Testament, and I, and I read from, 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 from the Old Testament to the New Testament, building the connections to Christ, and I look at Daniel 7 and the Son of Man and the glorious picture, and well, I see how he kind of messed this up and thought of one thing rather than another. Why did he become so severe with, with Peter in this passage? Where well, I'd like to suggest that Peter is echoing A temptation that came earlier in the ministry of Jesus. And temptation that came from the very lips, so to speak, of the evil one himself. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is fasting for 40 days... In the wilderness, the third of the temptations is recorded for us in Matthew is that the evil one takes Jesus to a very high place or a very high mountain and spiritually speaking is able to reveal to him or show to him the kingdoms of the world and says, if you're willing to bow down to me right now, I will give you all power and rule and authority of the kingdoms of this world. And you know what Jesus says? Do you know that the only other time we see these phrases? He says, be gone, Satan. Almost the exact words here. Get behind me. Go away, Satan. Resist the evil one later, we'll we'll be told, and he will what? Flee from you. That's what Jesus is modeling in this. Peter, when he says to Jesus, Jesus, listen, you've got this Messiah thing all wrong. (laughs) Okay, like the imagery is this and victory and success and you're talking about suffering and death. No, that's not the case. I want to get you some self esteem classes. You, you have, there's, a much more, there's much more capital you could be working with than, than that which you're, you're presently channeling. And, and what, Peter just thinks he's encouraging him, right? He's encouraging me. He's, get, get Jesus, course correct here. We're on, a, we're on a roll. We're going to Jerusalem. Good things are going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He sees a deep and profound threat in Peter's words. What's the threat? The threat is to love yourself, Jesus, and not suffer and die and complete your mission, but seize the crown and avoid the cross. I find that very tempting. That's why I don't have sometimes awkward conversations. Now, it's on a miniature scale from Jesus, you understand. Not even worthy to be compared to the challenges, but... I, I don't want there to be suffering to say yes to the, to the call. I, I'd rather just avoid it. I'd rather just take the easy road. It, think of how tempting this would be for Jesus. He is in the rightful position as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to be the ruler over all kingdoms and nations. That's his rightful position. It would not be wrong for him to long for it and to want it. For us, we probably couldn't do it without sin, a sinful ambition. Because we would have a God complex. Guess what? He is God. He can't have a God complex. All rule and power and authority is his. Satan is giving him a genuine temptation. He rightfully should be in this role. There's no reason for you to go through this suffering. Your pay grade is much higher than that. And it's in a sense that Peter is echoing the very same thing that Jesus had or that Satan had echoed many, many months, even years earlier. And so often what I think happens with us in the Christian life with regards to the call that the Lord has placed upon us is that we hear that whisper, don't we? We, we know that God's called us to do something. We can see it clearly. He's put a conviction in your heart. He's put a confidence in a certain area. He's put you in a relationship with someone He's given you resources that you're holding back. You're not using your time according to his mission. And when you begin to look over the ledger of your life and you begin to see where am I investing eternally, and it's like almost none but the things of this world you give a lot of time and energy to. And as you look at them, you begin to have your heart sort of sink in there and you go, ah, I really should go do something, but that's going to feel like a cross. I'll do it tomorrow. I think sometimes one of the things that we do as well is we relax into our salvation in a way that makes us lazy rather than receive the comforts of our salvation that rises up within us for motivation to serve. Those are different. Those are different. Spot what it is that you need. So Sometimes we go, well, you know, God's going to... He saved me. I can't lose my salvation. That's what Nate tells me. And as I read the Bible... Um, I, I think I'm in, in good hands. So if I don't do this, it's not like he's going to, you know, "quote unquote," kick me out. I mean, sort of, we sort of fall into a spiritual laziness and a presumption about our Christian life when, in fact, the way in which we're revealing ourselves over and over and over is the fact that the love of Christ is really not in us. It's deeply concerning if that's the case. This temptation is all around us, and I think especially when we look at our wealth, we look at our opportunities that avail us, we think of how the mission of Christ is so far down the line. You know, is it a blessing when a rich man gets more money? What's it do into his heart? That's how you'll know if it's a blessing or a curse. Let's look at it through the lens of Christ. How do we overcome this? How do we overcome this struggle? How do we not give in to this temptation, really embrace the the call of Christ? Well, that's the last thing I want to look at before we close. Live by the light of eternity. How do we overcome this temptation? I want to take that phrase from the Puritans. I think it's a really helpful phrase. To live by the light of eternity. This is what Jesus says. How does He motivate you to to live according to His call? Because He doesn't leave you with no motivation. He doesn't just say here, Pick up your cross. It's going to be hard. Let's go. That's not what he does. He says, I'm actually trying to save you. I'm trying to do what is best for you. Listen to what he says, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. Now, we don't have long to be able to treat this, so let me say this briefly. But notice, notice the use of economic terms in verses 35 to 38. They're, they're all throughout. Loss, save, profit, gain, forfeit, give. We might say that Jesus is, in a sense, asking us to spiritually, eternally live by the light of the truth of things and do the math. Calculate it. Crunch the numbers and see what's a good deal. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So if you spend your fleeting life that is going to end... Seventy, if due strength, 80 years. It's going, and all the things that you have are going to be left behind. But if you spend it all for the purposes of Christ, for all eternity you'll be with Christ and have more than you could ever imagine, hope, or dream. Or you could have heaven now and hell forever. That's Jesus' deal. He's asking us to see it. If you acquire all the money in the world, if you have the best spouse imaginable, your kids are geniuses, right? You're the the height of the field of expertise, whatever world you operate in. You're popular. You're influential. You have authority. And you die and lose it all. Was that a good investment? Jesus is asking or let's say you don't have any of those things. But you daily lived in sacrifice to Christ. You answered His call. You took up the cross and you denied yourself and followed Him. You knew the peace of Christ breaking in upon your heart as you said no to the things of the world and you said yes to the things of heaven. And you died penniless, but you lived forever with the inheritance of Jesus. Is that a good deal? That's what Jesus is asking. He's asking and revealing the very clarity of what Jim Elliot wrote in his journal in 1949 after he had graduated from Wheaton College but before he had gone to serve the Aka Indians in Ecuador. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what what he cannot lose. Jesus says that if we live in a manner that's the opposite of that, eternity is truly hanging in the balance. And, and maybe you even notice there that final note with Jesus. He's saying, listen, if you're embarrassed of me here, if you're ashamed of me here, it's a great white throne judgment, I'll be ashamed of you. Listen, I, I, I just thought of it this week. I hadn't thought of it in, in years. But I remember as a teenager doing something that was just it was just wrong. <laughs> shouldn't have said it. Shouldn't have done it. And it leaked out. I got found out. and made its way to my parents. And I just remember the grief, the shame that I felt for what it is I had said and done. But you know what? what was most grievous? Was seeing what it did to them seeing it on their face and knowing that that what I had done shamefully had shamed them. There was an embarrassment that they experienced in in the midst of the way that I had had acted. Friend, that's that's not the face we want to see on Jesus, is it? Now maybe some of us are, are thinking to ourselves here now, I don't have a chance if this is the case, if I've got to keep this uh, perfectly. If I can't falter at any point and do anything wrong, there's going to be... Oh, I'm breaking things up here. Um, if I falter at any point or I do something that just helps me fall, makes me fall short of what it is that God has called me to, why want you to remember the Peter that he's speaking to here? Peter's here. That Peter is going to deny Jesus three times by the end of this gospel. He's going to do the very thing that Jesus says not to do here in this text. And then do you remember at the end of the gospel of John, you remember what Jesus does? He comes back to him and what does he do? He restores him. He restores him. He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? And at the end of that whole narrative, after he says, feed my sheep three times or feed my lambs, he says to him, follow me. Follow me. Do you know our degree of willingness to sacrifice for Christ is in direct proportion to the depth of our love for him? Jesus knows that. Our problem is not that we haven't mustered up enough strength in our flesh to do what Jesus has called you. You don't have enough strength in your flesh to muster up to do what Jesus has called you to do. You need to know that when you have failed Him, and you have, as I have, over and over and over again, He unfailingly loves you. He unfailingly loves you. He came to Peter and He said, Do you love me? And restored him and he made him the rock who would preach at Pentecost where thousands of people would come to know the Lord. The one who, who walked away from a servant girl who asked him if he knew Jesus became the strongest of preachers on the day of Pentecost by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the love of Jesus changed him. And do you know when it changed him? After he had failed and was restored by Grace. Do you know what will keep you from the change that God wants to bring in your life? Not repenting and going to God. Do you know what will change your life? Going to God in your brokenness and in your sin. And pursuing His forgiveness and hearing of His love. That's what will do it. Because you know right now, all of the ways that we've fallen short are actually the, the ways in which God can build us up to become mighty evangelists for the work of His kingdom. Those who have fallen so short need an unfailing Savior, and indeed that's who is coming to you today. Whether you have known it for the first time or whether you've known it a thousand times, I pray this is the day where you're renewed and refreshed in the commitment of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that we would be a church that stirs up one another to love and good deeds as we follow hard after him. Father in heaven, we would pray that you would do just that right now. You renew us by faith, strengthen us in the kingdom. That you would make of us servants that you, O oh Lord, would would smile upon with delight as you see our service in your kingdom. Would you come and blow fresh winds now through this place, through our hearts as we seek to follow you? in love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.